morning, guys. Well, joy to the world. The Lord has come. We're already in Christmas season, Advent season. That's exciting. The, uh, and the store decorations have only been up for a month already. Christmas is so much fun. I, just lo- I love it, especially with the kids. They get so excited and get into it, even if they don't understand it all. And uh, that's kind of the way we are sometimes about the Bible. We get excited and don't always understand it. But uh, a few years ago, I guess it was about 30 years ago, we had a young minister on our staff named Rich Doris. Some of you remember him. And uh, he had a little son, Steve. And when Steve was uh, about four or five years old, he was in Sunday school, and it was about this time of the year, and they were drawing uh, pictures of Christmas. And uh, he drew a little crash scene. And his teacher looked at it and said, Steve, that's a, that's a great little picture, but what's this fat little man over in the left-hand uh, bottom of the picture? And Steve said, that's round John Virgin. <laughs> you know, sometimes you don't understand something, you just got to make the best of it. And that's kind of the way I feel about Revelation. I, I, still think that, I still think John just had bad pizza the night before. That's all I can figure on this thing. You know, uh, if you've already seen today's paper, uh, splattered there in the front page, John Cutcliffe, John Cutcliffe. Uh, you old Miss fans, you just couldn't take it. One losing season, the guy's out of there, you know. Uh, and you know, I was looking at it this morning, and and uh, I think Coach Cutcliffe is a good man from everything I know. Uh, and uh, David, thank you. Why do I call him John? Uh, David Cutcliffe. Uh, he's a good guy, but I just don't know his name. Uh, uh, but, you know, I was thinking, what would it be like for one of us this morning, you know, to have your... Pay your picture on the front page. You know, if you get your picture on the front page, for most of us, it's because we did something really bad. I mean, you know, there's no other way to get on the front page. I mean, Adrian Rogers gets on the front page, you know, at his, at his retirement, and that's good. But most of us, if we get there, it's going to be bad. And so I was thinking, what would it be like if you wake up in the morning and there's your picture on the front page of the commercial appeal and, and your firing, you know, is announced now to everybody in the, in the whole city and the whole world for that matter. Uh, that could be devastating. You know, coaches and other kinds of people, public figures, politicians, have to get used to that. But that's pretty tough stuff. And um, how do you pull out of something like that? Uh, and you may not have had that happen to you where your picture's on the front page, but you've had bad things happen to you. Some of you here have been fired. And you know how devastating that is without it being on the front page of the paper. How do you recover? And uh, one great thing about the Christian faith and about the Scriptures is that it does teach us how to recover from things. And uh, then in our world, there's just so much brokenness. Uh, of course, this whole week, uh, the world has been focused on AIDS, and yesterday was World AIDS Day. I don't know if you knew that or saw much about it in the paper. But some of you may have uh, seen the uh, little piece on PBS last night about a little fella, 12 years old, who died of AIDS, and his name was Nikosi, Nikosi. Uh, in Kosi Johnson, I think it was. Uh, and he uh, was kind of the poster child for AIDS because he, he was born with AIDS because his mother had it. And he lived 12 years because he was an adopted child in a middle-class family in Johannesburg, I think it was. And, you know, the comment was made that uh, we now have 40 million people in this world who have HIV. 40 million. And there's a tipping point in underdeveloped countries when AIDS reaches about 1%. Uh, 
then it begins to explode exponentially. And that's what we've seen in South Africa. There are 700,000 AIDS orphans in South Africa alone. Uh, this, this is a uh, crisis of the first order. And uh, as many churches as we have represented around here, I guess I just want to say that uh, once you go back to your church and just ask what your church has to do with ministering in this crisis because it's a, it's a world need and it's also an opportunity for those who know Jesus Christ to seek to bring comfort and make a difference in a place where there's a tremendous need. And now, of course, uh, half of AIDS victims are women. And half of them have only had one sexual partner, their husband. But uh, in so many places, you know, the husband is having multiple partners, goes home and gives it to his wife, and now it's 50% of them. So uh, it is a tremendous crisis. What do we do? What do we do about that? How do we respond to it? These kinds of things come up all the time in, in real life. And uh, we look in this world, we find all kinds of problems, problems that we face, problems that this world faces. And then we look, what kind of answers is the world giving? And it doesn't seem to be too encouraging. I just read an article this past week about, uh, and sorry for any of you who are Princeton uh, alums, but I, I was reading about uh, the ethics professor who's really made himself quite infamous uh, here in these recent years, Dr. Peter Singer, the ethics professor at Princeton, very popular professor, soft-spoken man, very intelligent. His beliefs uh, are that uh, not only should we have same-sex union, same-sex marriage, but we ought to allow people to have as many partners in marriage or not marriage as they want. Uh, he was asked about bestiality. He said, well, there's nothing really wrong with that. How about uh, having uh, sex with a, a, a corpse? Nothing really morally wrong about that. Just maybe a little silly and stupid, but not morally wrong. Uh, and uh, he was asked about what if we allow people to give birth to a child so they can kill them and take their parts and use them for their other children or for anybody else. Well, nothing morally wrong with that. Uh, of course, he is a vegetarian uh, and believes in animal rights. Uh, but that, that, that's how ridiculous things have gotten. You know, Princeton right now is, is uh, now you Princeton alums will be proud of this, the most exclusive uh, university in terms of admissions. I think they take about 10% of their uh, applications uh, and admit them. So it's the most, one of the most exclusive or the most exclusive university undergraduate uh, in the country. And this is the kind of garbage. These are the kinds of answers that the world is giving. Well, what about the church? Uh, if the world can't give the answers for the kinds of difficulties that we're facing and our world is facing, what about the church? Well, this past year, and, and with... Uh, Apologies to those of you who are Episcopalians, but you know how much I love the Episcopal Church, and so therefore I talk about you sometimes. I love the prayer book, and I love its traditions. And uh, we've been going through this huge crisis these past two years, which is issuing out of years of crisis in the ECUSA, uh, where folks have really left the historic moorings of the Episcopal Church, the 39 Articles and other, other Articles of Faith. And now, of course, you know we, we have the ordination of, of a bishop who's an outspoken uh, active uh, homosexual. And for those of you who may be homosexual or have close homosexual friends or family members, uh, listen, we, we love homosexual men and women. And uh, we include them in our friendships. We seek to serve them and love them. But one act of love would not be to say that their lifestyle uh, is doing them any good. An act of love is to help people 
And so if we believe in the truth and that the truth leads to goodness and health and wholeness, that we ought to encourage people to live in a way that reflects nature, for heaven's sakes, uh, as well as the Bible. But uh, here, even in one of our main churches in this country, very influential church, East USA, we can't, even, we can't even clarify whether a man ought to be living with a man or a woman or whether he ought to be married or not. And uh, so the bishop is ordained, as you know. creates a huge crisis in the world because uh, worldwide, the, Episcopal, the Anglican Church uh, is a very strong church, biblically. Uh, the United States, uh, unfortunately, is not particularly strong, but it is around the world. So there's this huge uproar in the world about it. We've all been waiting for the, the council to get together and, uh, and to decide what they're going to do. And so those of you who are Episcopalian, of course, know that uh, in October of this year, the, we came out with the Windsor Report. Everyone was waiting on the Windsor Report. What's it going to say that we ought to do? Well, the Windsor Report, sorry, a classic uh, English document. <laughs> Just, I'm, I'm Scott, so I, you know, I, I make fun of the English. Uh, classic English document. Uh, you know, the, those in America ought to tell everybody they're sorry that they did this, and those in Africa ought to tell everybody they're sorry that they threatened the unity of the church. Now, that was about it. And neither one is willing to do it. And uh, this, this is what one of the bishops uh, said. Oh, I didn't bring it with me. But yeah, I did too. Uh, this is the, uh, one of the bishops in Africa who said about the Windsor Report, it fails to confront the reality that a small economically privileged group of people, that's the United States, has sought to subvert the Christian faith and impose their new and false doctrine on the wider community. We've been filled with grief as we have witnessed the decline of the North American church that was once filled with missionary zeal and yet now seems determined to bury itself in a deadly embrace with the spirit of the age. And I read that description. I thought, you know, that's, that's not the Episcopal church. That's the American church. That's all of us together that come under that charge. And so we look at the huge problems in the world. And... Uh, we look at the AIDS, just take the AIDS crisis, 40 million people now ready to go to their grave sometime soon. And what's our answer? Let's celebrate homosexuality. Does that make any sense? That's the church. Now, lest you get discouraged, uh, we've spent several weeks in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And that's exactly what the Apostle John in exile in Patmos, he's in exile, remember, because of his faith. And he's looking at these seven churches just across the Aegean Sea. And he's speaking in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have seen the kind of uh, charges that were made against those churches. They are trifling with all manner of evil. Intellectual evils, uh, evils of uh, ethics, uh, evils of their practice, evils within their, their uh, fellowship. So this is no new thing that the church goes astray, that the church needs to be disciplined that the church needs to hear a word from the Lord. But we've seen with all the problems in the world, and certainly John knew that they were facing huge problems in the world, including persecution under Domitian, uh, the emperor of his time. And uh, facing all that persecution, all the brokenness of the Roman Empire, and here are these churches, the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what do they have to say about it? Not much. So it is a continuing amazement. It should be continually amazing to us that the church survives <laughs> in this sea of wickedness and we have hardly anything to say about it at all. But God is faithful to His church. 
and that he's faithful to continue to give us answers. What we're going to see is, when we come to chapter 4 in Revelation, which, of course, is the whole point, that there's a major transition between chapters 2 and 3 and chapter 4. And uh, this is, as I mentioned earlier, is when it gets kind of wild and hairy. There will be some controversy. Uh, some of you are going to write me some emails that I can answer, and some of them I won't be able to answer, and that's fine. Uh, but what we're going to see in chapter 4 primarily is a huge shift from now God speaking to his churches and chiding them and correcting them. Now he takes John in to see this grand vision. And let's just look at the first few chapters, uh, first few verses of chapter 4. And then I'm going to refer to some things that are on your table, some handouts. You're going to need those in front of you if you haven't grabbed one already. Uh, they have to do it this week. Well, we've looked at the seven churches and the word that was given there. And now let's look at maybe the first three verses of chapter 4. After this, I looked... And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. We'll stop there. What's happening, gentlemen, is that John is being introduced to an entirely different mindset, an entirely different way of looking at things. And this is vital for every one of us, whether you're Baptist or Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, doesn't matter what you are, Methodist. We've got to have a new perspective. We've got to know there's a new power, that the throne is not at Princeton University or University of Memphis. The throne is not in any of our local churches. The throne is in heaven. And that's what gives leverage and focus to history and to future history. Uh, and so we find our relief by getting into another dimension. You know, we live in three dimensions. But sometimes we're a G.K. Chesterton, I think it was, who spoke of what would it be like if you had only lived in two dimensions. You know, you just lived, you know, with these two dimensions... Uh, we were flatlanders, you know. Never knew what the third dimension was like. We couldn't imagine a third dimension. Well, we can't imagine a fourth dimension either but we, because we live in three dimensions. And sometimes that, that's all that means anything to us is just this life, our problems today, trying to solve them with the means that are within those three dimensions. And what John is being introduced to now in a very dramatic way is this additional dimension. And this is so difficult for guys who are trying to live very practical lives, make a living, get through each day, survive, all the rest of it, uh, our first instinct is grab, to grab for the resources that we can think of within our own powers and within this dimension. John's going to introduce us to something else. Now, I want us to back up for just a moment and look at that basic outline of Revelation that you've got. I don't even know if you can read that, but you've got it in front of you. And you'll see that we've been dealing with chapter 1, which is a, has a prologue and introduces us to Christ. Chapter 2 is Christ's word to his churches, uh, chapters 2 and 3. And then we come to this sequence of things uh, that uh, are difficult for us to understand. We're going to make our way through it in these weeks ahead. Uh, you have the scroll with the seven seals, uh, four chapters. Then the seven trumpets of judgment, uh, about four chapters of that. 
think Christ's conquest over the dragon and the beast. We want to know who the, who's the dragon, who's the beast, who are the beasts. Then the seven angels pour seven bowls of wrath. Then the final judgment of Babylon and the wedding feast of the Lamb. Then, of course, the rider on the white horse who strikes down the nations. And then we come to chapter 20, and this once again will be, a, uh, be a, an area where we will d- delve into some controversy. We have the millennium, and then, of course, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the outline of Revelation. No one debates, no one debates the facts uh, that are in those texts. But what we do sometimes debate is what's the meaning of it all. And before we come back to these three verses we just read, I, I do want to address for just a few moments the flip side of that handout, which shows the four historic interpretive frameworks for Revelation 4.19. You have the basic outline there. We all agree to that. But we might ask ourselves, why in the world is that thing so controversial? Uh, well, there are reasons. And I'd like to walk through this with you for just a moment. First of all, if you take that outline, let me make some corrections on it, if you don't mind, um, before we start discussing it. Uh, under idealist, on the right-hand side, uh, historical development, the third category, where it says Alexandrian fathers. This is under idealist, third category, Alexandrian fathers. You have Cyprian, uh, and Cyprian might be an A instead of an E. Come to think of it. Clement of Alexandria. Origin, that should be a capital O, and it should be O-R-I-G-E-N. Sorry, we did this rapidly yesterday. I didn't proof it. Then uh, let me give you the dates for Jerome. Uh, Jerome is 342 through 420. Then moving down uh, to commentators and advocates, let me make three corrections in that uh, line. Under preterist, that first column, commentators and advocates, Hugo Grotius. That's G-R-O-T-I-U-S. Grotius. Then moving over two columns, same line. Commentators and advocates under futurist. That's C-I, Schofield. And just below his name, that's R-H, Mounts. C-I, Schofield, and R-H, Mounts. Last correction. Uh, under the column historicist uh, strengths. We speak of Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. That just should be underlined and obviously capitalized. That's a, that's a title, obviously. Decline and fall of the Roman Empire. I believe those are the, those are the only corrections uh, that I noticed need to be made. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. There are four basic outlooks in interpreting Revelation 4 through really 4 through 20, including the millennium. Uh, and I want to give you some background on how these emerged, what the essence of each one of them is, well, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Well, let's look first of all at the preterist. The preterist view says that Revelation 4 through 19 refers to contemporary history. Now, that means contemporary to the hearers, first century contemporary history, all right? So you might want to put first century contemporary there. Especially the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, from the preterist point of view, the destruction of Jerusalem is the big moment where the Son of Man comes and He judges and He destroys much on the earth, including the Roman Empire, uh, using the Roman Empire to destroy uh, the city of God. And so up through chapter 12, uh, 
Revelation would be speaking about God's judgment of the city of Jerusalem. And then after chapter 12, uh, the preterist says, uh, Revelation is speaking of the church's uh, struggle with paganism. So the destruction of Jerusalem is key. Now, you would say, why would that be? How could that be if Revelation were written in 95 A.D., which many suspect? Well, uh, the preterist has reasons we won't go into today to suggest that Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem and it actually prophesied it before it happened. So the preterist, uh, you will find, has pretty uh, strong arguments to suggest that it was written beforehand. Now, there were some aspects of preterism that you will find in the early church. Uh, Folks, scholars who were suggesting that this had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. But you don't see a full view worked out until the Jesuit scholar uh, Luis de, de Alcazar in the 16th, 17th century. Uh, and we'll see that um, some suspect that he was reacting to a very anti-Catholic view uh, which had developed called historicism. And we'll look, to, look at that in just a moment. Uh, so you can see the structure and outline, uh, ver- chapters 4 through 11, uh, Chapter 12 through 19 has to do with the struggle with paganism and then, of course, the triumph of the church at the end of Revelation. Their typical view of the millennium is post-millennial. What that means is Jesus Christ comes at the end of the millennium. Premillennialism means that Jesus Christ comes before the millennium. We'll get into that in much more detail in the spring when we get to chapter 20, which talks about the millennium. But this is just to show you that there's a consistent, general consistency between the interpretive framework that's being used and one's view of the millennium, in case you're interested. And you see certain commentators and advocates, I won't go into those, except to suggest, uh, and I've written here the names of the ones I would suggest if you're interested in following up on, these might be the best authors who represent this view and can explain it to you. Ken Gentry, uh, who's a a contemporary of ours, uh, has written on preterism and postmillennialism uh, very broadly, and if you're interested, you can read. Now, the strength of it is that there's no question that this has immediate relevance to the ones who are receiving this letter for the first time. Uh, if it were written before A.D. 70 and uh, it was predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and the struggles the church would go through, it obviously has relevance. Uh, and we'll see that it, it answers some questions in Revelation 1.1 and 1.19 and 22.10 that have to do with these things taking place quickly or in a short period of time. So it answers that concern. And then we don't have time to go into this either, but the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21, those are versions of, of Jesus' discourse on Mount Olivet where he describes the end times. And when you look at those chapters, you will find also some ways of looking at it that may suggest that Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, he says, at a certain time when things begin to happen, flee to the hills. And the Christians actually in 70 A.D. remembered what Jesus said and fled to the hills and were spared. And the, and the uh, preterist says, well, uh, there were about 144,000 Christians that were spared. 144, sound familiar? Um, you know, in Revelation. So there's a lot uh, that commends it in terms of thinking about the focus of that key event in history in 70 A.D. Uh, And then it has an optimistic view of history. That is, things are getting better and better. The millennium 
it will come. It will be a great period of renewal. Uh, the church will be here, of course, as opposed to the premillennials we'll talk about in just a moment. But uh, that we'll go through this together. There will be a, time of great, a season of great revival, worldwide evangelism, and at the end of that, Christ will come. And then uh, you see the weaknesses. It's heavily dependent upon a pre-70 AD dating. That is, if it weren't written before 70 AD and it's about the destruction of Jerusalem, it's not much of a foretelling prophecy, is it? Uh, now, liberal scholars do not necess- who are preterist are not necessarily uh, subscribing to the view that it was authored before 70 AD because they are anti-supernaturalist anyway. So they wouldn't expect that John would have had a vision about something that's going to take place in the future. So they're very happy to have a later dating of John, of Revelation. But this view is heavily dependent upon pre-70 A.D. dating. It's localized in scope, has to do with Jerusalem, city of Jerusalem, time-bound in relevance. That is, if this was about the destruction of Jerusalem, well, what about 2,000 years later? Or what kind of application? And then, of course, it is open to anti-supernaturalism because folks could make a strong argument for post-70 A.D. dating of John having written it. Okay, that's the preterist view. Now, the historicist view also had some beginnings with the Western fathers. These would be the Latin fathers uh, that you see listed there. These are very early fathers. Uh, not a full-blown historicist view, but they early on, uh, we, we have records of this. We have commentaries on Revelation from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries. So, very early on, people were commenting on Revelation and having studies like this to try to figure this thing out. And very early on, they were making connections between some of these symbols and historical events. So that was taking place. But it really was in the 12th century with Anselm. A little later on, the Franciscans, uh, the Franciscan monks in the 13th to 14th century tended to be historicists. Then Martin Luther and the Reformers really picked it up. And here's what they basically said. And I've worked out their their scheme here under structure and outline. They use the idea that one day in Revelation equals one year. And we'll see in some places where we have three and a half years or 1,260 days. Well, Luther and the historicist interpreters were saying those are 1,260 years. And, and you will find a, an interesting, if you ever re- read this stuff, you'll find a very interesting parallel with Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire and the interpretation of the Revelation. And it just seems to be a, a kind of a nice match. The, uh, you'll, you'll look at this, uh, this structure and outline here. The barbarian invasions of Rome are what's happening in breaking the seven seals. And then uh, chapters 8 through 11, the trumpets are foreign invasions of the empire ending with the fall of Constantinople, 1453. And then look at this. The, the beast is the pope. <laughs> there are aspects of papacy there, Luther said. The bowls of wrath are judgment on the papacy. And then the 17th through 19th is the fall of the Roman church. Now, you Roman Catholics are going to say, wow, that's some kind of view. Well, this was popular among the reformers. Uh, and then you will find uh, the, those who followed the Reformers, like Matthew Henry, who's, who's a very fine biblical commentator, classically uh, Albert Barnes, uh, John Wesley uh, held to a historicist view. Jonathan Edwards was post-millennial, but he held to a historicist view. Charles Spurgeon held to a historicist view. So it was very popular, uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century Protestants in particular. Now, the strengths would be that uh, it is relevant to the church age. That is, it's following history, so it's relevant to today, especially in the West. Uh, In other words, it didn't include much about Eastern history, 
It was that you know, the reformers and those in the West were connecting the events of Revelation to their own history, which is very typical of interpreters of Revelation, by the way. And so you see the strengths there. It also was consistent with the history of the Roman Empire. But look at the weaknesses. It was driven by European anti-Catholic ideology. Its exegesis is too mathematical and mechanical. There were disagreements among exegetes. It's amazing. For every historicist, there's a different view on which historical event is being referred to in Revelation, and you're used to that, I'm sure. And then the exegesis climaxes in, in the present generation of the interpreter. It's always true. In every, in every century, the big deal is where it ends right there in that century. And it's very time-bound to the interpreter. And this also is typical of the futurist which we, to which we now turn. Now, the futurist is saying that Revelations 4 through 19 is a prophecy regarding the end of this age. So here's what the futurist is saying. If you look down at the structure, uh, let's look at Revelation 1.19, and this, this will kind of give you the outline for the futurist for a lot of interpreters of Revelation. They'll say, verse 19 in chapter 1 says, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And they say, there's the outline. Chapter 1, what you have seen. That is, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, what is now? Christ's letter to the seven churches. Chapter 4 and following, what will take place later? That is the future. And so it seems like a natural outline. That's the way it's broken out here. And you'll see under the structure and outline of the futurist that uh, 4 and 5 is the rapture of the church. Chapter 6 through 19 is the period of tribulation. And chapter 20 is the millennium, which comes later. And then 20, 20, 21 and 22 is the eternal state. Now, this is what the futurist is saying. You're saying that uh, when John says in chapter 4, if you'll turn back there, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Basically, what the futurist is saying, this represents the church being taken up into heaven. That John, what John is saying is after these things, this is what comes next that we've seen what is in the letters to the churches, and now the church is taken up into heaven. They're what, what the futurist calls the rapture. They're raptured up into heaven. Now, there is, everybody agrees who, who believes the Bible, there is such a thing as a rapture. That is, we're taken up into heaven when Jesus Christ comes back. But the futurist is saying that in John's revelation, this is where it happens. And furthermore, they would say you will not find the word church in the rest of Revelation till the end of chapter 22. So that the rest of this writings, beginning with chapter 4, all the way through chapter 20, has nothing to do with the church. It has to do with things that are happening on the earth apart from the church. So the church is raptured and taken into heaven. That will happen in the future at some point, And then all these things begin to happen. That's the basic outline for a dispensational a futurist Interpretation, And you see that the typical view of the millennium is premillennial, dispensational premillennial. That means when, when you say dispensational premillennial, that means a lot. But one thing it means is that the rapture of the church will take place before all this tribulation begins. So a dispensationalist, if you've been wondering what that means, it means a lot, and we won't go into all of it today. But one thing it means is that at the end time, the church will be taken up before all this grief all these bowls of wrath happen and all that. church is gone. And this is only what's happening to those who remain on the earth. Okay? And then, 
after the church is raptured, they will then be reunited uh, with the church or with, with those in the kingdom on earth uh, at the end of the millennium when Jesus Christ comes back at the very end. So premillennial would mean that Jesus comes before the millennium. So church is raptured. Jesus comes back to judge before the millennium. And then the millennium is put in place. And during that millennium is when all the Old Testament promises to Israel are fulfilled. This is one important reason why the futurist is premillennial. That it, without a millennium, the futurist can't figure out how the Old Testament promises are going to be fulfilled. So you've got to have a millennium that's a, basically a Jewish-centered millennium in, with Jerusalem being restored as the city of God and the kingdom of Israel being given its promises during that millennium. And then those who believe in Christ will, of course, uh, be ushered into the eternal state at the end of the millennium. So that's the basic uh, dispensational futurist scheme. I know it's complicated, uh, but at least you can see this, that the futurist scheme is saying that Revelation 4 through 19 that we're beginning to look at doesn't have anything to do with present history. It has to do with the future. That's the, thus the name futurist. Okay? And because chapter 4 begins with the rapture, which is going to happen in the future, they say. So this was a very helpful viewpoint from a Catholic point of view. And you can see one of the uh, originators of the whole idea is Francisco Ribera in the 16th century. It's Roman Catholic. And basically it was helpful because here you had the Reformers. They look at the date, 1537-1591. So this is counter-reformational. Okay? You have Martin Luther and the other Reformers who have this very anti-Catholic uh, historicist view that is saying that Revelation really has to do with the evils of Rome and the Pope and the destruction of the Roman Catholic Church. Here you have in the latter part of the 16th century a view that's saying, now wait just a minute, it doesn't even have anything to do with that. You have in chapters 2 and 3, you have Revelation dealing with the, the church in the first century, but when you get to chapter 4, it's dealing with the future. It's not even dealing with now. So it just discounts all that uh, anti-papal ideology. So you can see it's very helpful from that point of view. But then, of course, you get to the 19th century, look at these names that wouldn't be familiar to you, Malin and Sice. But if you look down below the commentators and advocates, well, you see a bunch of names that you might recognize there. You know, the old Schofield Bible uh, is a dispensational, that means pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, a dispensational uh, view of the Scriptures. If you have a Schofield Bible, it's suffused with that view. The 19th and 20th century picked it back up and uh, brought it into meaning with, in terms of 20th century historical events that, of course, we'll be getting into later um, and showed how some of the signs of our own day are suggesting that this big rapture moment is ready to happen. Now, let's look at the strengths of this view. The strength is that the structure from Revelation 1.19 uh, seems to make sense. The things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be. Uh, just like Acts 1.8 uh, you know, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. And if you look at the rest of Acts, you have ministry in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the, uh, of the earth. And you can, you can outline Acts on that one verse. And so the advantage here is you've got a verse that seems to provide a nice outline. There's faith in supernatural foretelling. No doubt about that. 
Uh, this is not something that was written after the events that are being described, as the liberal scholar would want to say. This is definitely one who believes in supernaturalism. Uh, there is a global application. It doesn't, doesn't just have to do with Jerusalem. It doesn't just have to do with the West. Uh, it's definitely worldwide and applies to everyone. It accounts for the sequence in Daniel. We won't go into that, but there's a, a definite a serious dealing with the uh, parallels that are seen in Daniel, and there is a literal interpretation of the Scripture. That is, the desire is to take it as it is and to interpret it uh, with the clearest, most obvious initial uh, interpretation of those Scriptures, and it allows for the promise and fulfillment of the Old Testament. So all those promises to Israel that we know are yet unfulfilled, uh, you can see they, they, they don't have uh, the land from, from the great sea to the river. They don't have peace on all sides and all the rest. So how are those promises going to be fulfilled? Now, the, the difficulties of this view, as we've seen here, are newspaper exegesis. <laughs> Every time something happens in the newspaper, oh, it's Revelation 18.4, you know, or some such thing. And uh, people just change their views based on whether there's a war in Iraq or whether there's going to be one in Iran. And uh, there are 200 Chinese who are armed. Well, 200 million Chinese who are armed. Well, that has to mean this, that, and the other. And, and uh, helicopters are the, the locusts and, and all this. Uh, it's, it's really quite something. Uh, and then, interestingly enough, there's an inconsistency with literalism. Uh, the view that says it wants to be a literal interpreter is not always literal. For example, do you see a rapture in chapter 4? The word rapture is not there. It doesn't say anything about the church being raptured. So is that literal? Well, no. It's, it's uh, someone trying to piece the whole thing together just like all the rest of us poor slobs are. Uh, and so, you know, in dealing with literalism, you have to be very careful. There are many other examples of that. It's just one. Then the insensitivity to genre. Some would say that this is a literary genre in order to understand how to interpret this literature, you need to be looking at other apocalyptic things that were written uh, in that same period that are extant uh, and that we can, with which we can compare it. And then, of course, uh, chapters 4 through 20 become irrelevant to the church. Think about that. That would mean that if this interpretation is correct, then you, you're, you have the church rapture at verse 1 of chapter 4. Nothing else is relevant to the church until you get back to chapter 21. So you have a problem of irrelevance. Uh, and then there is a pessimistic view of history, which does occasionally incite fear of the future. Uh, I've noticed with futurists that uh, sometimes you have to, have to tell them to cheer up a little bit, you know. <laughs> uh, and I've noticed that sometimes they're afraid. These are believers in Jesus Christ who are afraid of the end times. And I want to suggest to you if, you, if that's the view you've got, your view is wrong no matter what it is. I can just tell you. You've got bad theology if you're afraid of the coming of Christ and you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and you're afraid of His coming, you're smart. <laughs> but <laughs> you, you do it. That's good. You're doing very well. But if you believe in Him and you're dreading His coming, you've got bad theology. I don't know what it is. It's just bad. It's wrong. Because you'll find all throughout the New Testament people are longing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes the futurist schema uh, leads to a pessimism that leads to fear. Now, lastly, look at the idealist point of view. What it's basically saying is that uh, Revelation 4 through 19 reveals a philosophy of history with some allusions to historical events. In other words, the idealist, or some people call it the spiritual view, uh, not that the others aren't spiritual, but that's usually a, a definition that's given by futurists who say they're spiritualizing. 
And the, the view, but the view is that this is highly symbolic. As you see, I list, call it here symbolic. And that in that symbolism, one has to study this literature in terms of its own genre and figure out what the symbols are communicating in terms of truths that are applicable for our own day with allusions to history and certainly allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, and then it, it has early precedence, especially with the Alexandrian fathers. Now, this is interesting. Westerners tend to be more concrete uh, and tend to be more literal. Uh, Easterners, as you know, tend to be more abstract and mystical. Well, it, was, it was true in the early church. Now, this is Alexandria, Egypt. But Alexandria, Egypt was Eastern. For example, the Coptic church in Egypt now, that, that's basically an Eastern Orthodox church, not a Roman Catholic tradition. So we're seeing the difference here between West and East. Now, in the East, uh, you have the great Augustine, North Africa. Uh, and Augustine, was he, he would tend to be in the tradition of the East. And Augustine tended to allegorize things, things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't follow now with Augustine. Augustine's a father for both the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. But there are many things Augustine did that you wouldn't follow. Some of his interpretations of the parables are highly allegorical and we don't think represent very good interpretation. But Augustine, of course, did many, many other things we could talk about that were phenomenal. He was one who held to this view following other fathers who preceded him, like Cyprian, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen. Now, Jerome, as you know, if you're Roman Catholic, uh, was the translator of the Greek New Testament into Latin. So the Latin Vulgate, which is the core biblical document for the Roman church, uh, was done by Jerome. And Jerome also held to this view. What is the view? Let's look at the structure and outline. The ideal is to say that if you begin with chapter 4 and go through the end of, of chapter 20, what you're getting is the scope of history in highly symbolic form and you have what is known as progressive parallelism. That is, uh, chapters 4 through 7 take you through the whole scope of history, the breaking of the seals. Then it's like, it's like waves coming on the shore. The wave comes up and recedes, and here it comes again. So you pick up with chapter 8 through 11, and the wave goes again and covers the scope of history. Then the wave recedes. Here comes another wave at chapter 12 through 14. So, uh, and we'll, we'll look at this as time goes on, but there's, what the idealists are suggesting is that there are basically seven uh, waves, seven, scope, seven occasions when all of history is scoped from the first incarnation, the first advent, to the second advent. That's basically the period. So you get seven of those. So you just have different ways of looking at it. In one case, it's the breaking of the seals. In another case, it's the blowing of the trumpets. In another case, it's pouring out the bowls of wrath. But in every case, the idealist is saying it's talking about the same thing. Okay. Uh, they tend to be amillennial. That means no millennium. But what the idealist is really saying is the, the millennium itself is a symbol. And that the millennium itself in chapter 20 is scoping all of history from first advent to second advent. It's the seventh wave that chapter 20 talking about the millennium. So the millennium is basically now. 
that that thousand years is a symbol for inter-advent period when the martyrs are being tucked in under the altar. And so, and we'll look at that when we get to chapter 20 about uh, why they make that argument. So you can see that this is not continuous history, it's repeated history, progressive parallelism. And they tend to be amillennial. That means that basically an amillennialist is a postmillennialist. That means that Christ will come at the end of this season. And since the amillennialist is saying the millennium is a symbol representing this season, Christ comes at the end of that. That makes, that makes an amillennialist a postmillennialist in a certain sense. You see certain representatives there. Now, the strengths of that view is that they tend to be sensitive to apocalyptic genre. They tend to look at the symbols and try to interpret them in a way that's consistent with the usage of symbols in uh, contemporary literature. It is consistent, at least in their view, with the rest of the New Testament. Where the, for example, with Pauline literature about the second coming, uh, they would say it seems that when Jesus Christ comes, he comes at the end of this period. And you don't have a lot of fancy things happening between here and there and that he could come at any moment, which means that we're in the final last days. So they would say it's consistent with the New Testament. It's relevant to all generations and of all places. We would agree with that, that their view would do that. And it accounts for several structural hints, they say, in the text. So that, uh, and we could uh, look at that later. Then, uh, weaknesses. A questionable dealing of Revelation 1.1. Let's look at the very first verse of Revelation. And you'll see the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place. And so the futurist and the historicist and the preterist especially would say to the idealist, so what happened to soon? <laughs> There's a questionable dealing of Revelation 1.19, the one we just looked at where you have that threefold structure, the things that were or the things that you've seen, the things that are now, and the things that will yet be. And some would say there's not really a serious engagement with that. And then uh, there is um, a problem in dealing with chapter 20. And let me turn with me to chapter 20 uh, for just a moment. And remember now, progressive parallelism is saying that that uh, John is taking us all the way through history and then he backs up again, starts with the Incarnation, goes all the way back to the Parousia, the return of Christ, backs up again to the Incarnation, goes all again to the Parousia. And that happens seven times. And the idealist is saying, typically, that it happens the last time at the beginning of chapter 20. Well, look at the language there. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. Does that sound like he's starting all over again? It sounds like he's continuing the narrative. So, uh, folks, so that's a little forced to say that there's a, there's a start. Now, some of the other starts, you know, where John says, for example, and after that or after these things, da da da, da which can be kind of a, just a little common phrase that's used to signal a new start. That's fine. There's structural hints in other places. But that one seems to be strained to most people. And then it is open to anti-supernaturalism. And by that I mean, and this, this would be a severe criticism especially from the futurist whose view is looking at this whole thing as though it's something that's going to happen in the future in great detail. And, and it, it would obviously require supernature for God to predict through the Apostle John exactly what's going to happen in the future. So there's no doubt about supernaturalism in futurism. 
But with idealism, uh, basically it can, it can corrupt into simply saying, well, you know, John's just trying to convey some good principles for a living, that things are going to work out all right in the end, uh, that God is ruling uh, with no real prediction about the future at all. Uh, so it can lead to that, and it has led to that uh, among liberal scholars, many of whom would prefer a more idealistic view. Now, with all that, and in just a moment, we are going to actually look at our uh, first three verses. We've got ten minutes, but let me ask you this. We've got six minutes. How many of you, I'm going to ask you to vote on where you think you are. And if you don't know a blooming thing about Revelation, just pick one. How many of you would think of yourselves as preterists? No preterists. How many of you would think of yourselves uh, as looking at generally from a historicist point of view? Okay, we've got some historicists. Thank you. How many of you look at it from a futurist point of view? Lots of futurists. How many of you would look at it from an idealist point of view? Okay. All right. Very interesting. Now, how many of you... And now, uh, yeah. Huh? Where do I vote? Let me ask you. How many of you think I'm a preterist? Guess I'm not one of those then. How many of you think I'm a historicist? Okay. How many of you think I'm a futurist? How many of you think I'm an idealist? Okay. Well, all I'm going to say is, if you'll look at this carefully, there's a hint. In here. Okay? All right. All right. Let's look at... Uh, no, I, I, I want... I, there is a hint. I, let me go ahead and show you the hint, and this will answer it. Answer your question. The author of the text we're using is in here. And it's under idealist. Is that a hint? <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I basically, uh, idealist would be where I would start but I include many of the things I, I learned from futurists and from historicists, and I'll, I've learned a lot from preterists. The preterists have really gotten my attention lately, and I'm looking more strongly at a preterist point of view because I do think that A.D. 70 was such a colossal event that it, we probably haven't taken it as seriously as we ought to uh, in the church. So you'll, you'll probably hear me suggest that there may be a preterist uh, type of application in a given place. So I basically am eclectic, but I, if you had to put me in a place... I guess the author I selected uh, for your text might, might give me away. That, that's probably where I start out. And let's, let's look at this. If you look at chapter 4, uh, so you, you know then that the, the way in which I'm coming to this probably reflects that point of view. I hope I don't trample on your point of view because most of you are not idealists from what you just said, and you don't have to be. Uh, that's not one of my goals in this, in this study is to make you what I am or give you the interpretive framework I have but I think it's helpful for you to know where I'm coming from so that if you disagree with my interpretive framework, you can reinterpret even as you listen to me and we can learn together about the common lessons that are here because there's some tre tremendous common lessons. Very quickly, the door to heaven is open. You see that with John. He's told, look, there's a door here. Look. And I want to say to you guys, look, this book is here for you to look into heaven and to see things that you haven't seen before and to look at life from a different perspective. And the first thing John is showing us is that with all the crud that's going on in his life as a pastor, 
as a person who's very concerned about these corrupting churches, some of the, a couple of which seem to be almost dead already, that he's got a new vision and inspires him, and he's an old man. So here's a grand vision that inspires a, a, an 80 or 90 year old man. So get the door open and take advantage of it because you're invited to come and see. And in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, we have the Apostle Paul tell us the first principle of a holy life is to be heavenly minded. And gentlemen, you don't tend to be heavenly minded. I don't either. We tend to deal with just what's in front of us and think of resources that are available to us. We don't bring God into the equation much at all. And what's happening in chapter 4 is John is being shown with all the problems in the church and all the problems in the world. Why don't you just come on up here for a minute and see things from a different perspective? The door is open. There's a voice, the same voice that you heard in chapter 1, the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ says, come on up here. And He's saying it to you today. The door is open. Come on in and see and get a different perspective. You know, most guys go to church and they think of it in one of two ways. Well, maybe three. Because the third one would be you, you go to get a little quiet so you can think about your golf grip. I mean, I know a guy who told me that. He says, you know, he said, I go to Mass because I get quiet and I can really think about whether I want interlocking grip or over. You know, honestly, it gets, it gets peace and quiet. It's time to place it to think. Some of you do that. But the two main reasons you want to go to church because you want to get some instruction about how to live life. Or, secondly, you go to church because you really need to step away and get a little retreat. It's a weekly retreat. And it should be. But, guys, this is a very inadequate view. What's happening at church is that you're being reminded of what all of life is about. It's not so that you can go just get a little instruction for how to really live real life. This is real life. The Eucharist is real life. The worship and the liturgy is real life. Singing praise to God, that's where real life is. And what you do is you live that real life Monday through Saturday as well. You're entering into real life. That's what John is being told here. Come on up. Then he gets up there and what does he find? Seventeen times in, this, in these two chapters he finds a throne. There's a focal point for the cosmos. What is that focal point? It's a place of ruling and governance. And with all the chaos that you see in this world and in our own nation and all the divisions and different opinions, you see a throne. And then what do you find? You find somebody's on that throne. His name is God. And language is used very common to Ezekiel 1. So what do we have John being told? With all the Roman emperors and with all the governors and procurators and with all the chaos and all the power plays out there, there's one on the throne. And he's not just a national governor or president. You know, when President Bush went to Canada, he had to behave himself. He doesn't rule. He doesn't preside over Canada. He presides over the United States. So you go to Canada and you defer, and you, Mr. Prime Minister, and you, you speak winsomely and you try to persuade. You don't rule people and you don't arrogate to yourself something that doesn't belong to you. Gentlemen, when Jesus Christ goes to Canada, he lays claim to it. Because he owns Canada, he owns the United States of America, he owns the whole globe, he owns the whole universe. This is not just the throne for the church. It's not just where the Pope resides. This is the throne for the cosmos into which we fit on this little speck of dust. So John is getting a wow perspective about his life lived in the presence of this throne. 
And then you'll see a parallel with Daniel 7, 9. I'll have this in print for you next time. Don't worry about it. But he's basically showing this is what Daniel was talking about in Daniel chapter 7. This is the one high and lifted up, the Ancient of Days, who rules and governs. And it doesn't matter whether it's Persians, the Medes, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, God rules. And so, in the mess that you're getting ready to go to, i got some really good news for you. You're not the center of that. And neither is your board of directors. And neither is the mayor or the president. Jesus Christ, God, is on the throne. And you live your life under His governance, under His rule, under His law, and under the sure and certain hope you'll see Him again. And when you see Him, you want to be sure that you're invited. Come on in. There's only one way to do that. You've got to be friends with His Son. <laughs> and we'll talk about it more next time. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You for Your Word in all of its majesty and mystery. And even the parts that confuse us, they drive us to our knees to seek You more dearly. And we know that sometimes You've made things difficult so that we have to work harder to know You. And we're thankful for that. And we pray that as we wrestle with this great book of the Bible, that we may be encouraged amidst all of our chaos. There's a throne, and you're on it, and we are subjects. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.